A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Hello, folks, and welcome back to The Napoleonicist. It's time for another monthly installment of Martial Madness. You seem to absolutely love these episodes. I'm not remotely surprised. Um, the, the OG of this, the one on Davu, is currently number six on the all-time favourite downloads um, for this podcast on 2000 and I think it's 69 listens um he says frantically trying to reach for his tracking data uh, to verify this i do you a disservice in fact rachel 2166 wow. downloads which is as i say number six on the old time um we had a review come in actually i say we the royal we here the grandiose royal we. i'm turning into napoleon this is awful um a review came in um <laughs> as rachel kind of bows and curtsies sarcastically to me uh, i i walked straight into that one um we had a review come in very recently that mentioned rachel by name uh this was from rzb which said this superb podcast just gets better and better with its wide ranging topics eg science and music so not just the blood and thunder stuff and knowledgeable and entertaining contributors. The new monthly series on Napoleon's Marshals with Rachel Stark is brilliant. She's a great find. I look forward to more. Well, with reviews like that, how could we not deliver? And boy, have we got one that's going to get your tongues wagging tonight because we've done uh, probably one of the most famous ones in Davu. We've done mm. one of the more forgotten ones in the form of McDonald. Why don't we just throw our toys out the pram and have a big argument next? That yeah. that was our thinking when we planned this one. So we're talking Bernadotte. One of a couple that many, many people just love to hate. I am, of course, joined by the brilliant Rachel Stark to talk me through all of this. 
I can't wait for this um, because I had happened to know that you and I think on very similar lines when it comes to Bernadotte. Mm -hmm. We yeah, seem absolutely. to be a minority in that score. How are you doing, Rachel? How have you been? Not too bad, thank you. Yeah, no, I, uh, I actually tweeted about Bernadotte earlier on this week and my mentions just went of people um, alternately going, oh, he was brilliant and equally going, he was a traitor, he was rubbish, he, you know, betrayed his country and so on it was he does seem to bring out the argumentative and people regardless of which side you you stand on so is it fair to say and we'll deal with the, the reasons and the history behind it all in in due course but is it fair to say that your stance on Bernadotte often kind of ties into your stance on Napoleon and what your expectations are of Napoleon's subordinates when it comes to blind loyalty versus other considerations that may or may not be something to factor in yeah definitely I think I am I, I go neither saint nor sinner regarding um Napoleon and I often sort of think that with some of the more controversial marshals Bernadotte being one Marmont being the other and Grouchy um people's sort of standards or benchmarks vary quite drastically depending on who their overall um, allegiance, if I can use that word, um, belongs to. And I'm very happy for people to have whatever stance you take on a marshal because everybody will interpret things in a different way. But what's good for the goose has got to be good for the gander. And if you're going to look at it critically, you need to be consistent. You can't admire a trait in one person and castigate another for having those exact same personality traits or taking these same actions just because you happen to have a personal dislike of them. Yeah, that is well said. Um, look at you coming in with like balance and reasonable arguments. This cannot be tolerated. So many of my guests on the Napoleonicists are trying to give like reasonable suggestions. No, we need memes. We need memes. We cannot have you know, carefully thought out positions. It's just not acceptable. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic and taking a pop at the more extreme um, who just want blind loyalty and vive l'empereur. And I'm very sorry, but if you haven't worked it out by now, that really isn't the tone of this podcast. It tends to be um, me bashing Napoleon, occasionally acknowledging some good points, people bringing me back into line, which is fair, because sometimes I'm sure I take the argument um too far but that's the point of it it's about the discussion mm -hmm. um so hey let's let's just get straight on with it and let's talk origins i was doing a bit of um reading because i need to when it comes to the marshals and inevitably we don't get through this without drawing upon chandler in some sense it seems that he goes on a bit of a a tangent joining the army this isn't the plan is it no and that's that's actually a fairly consistent theme for a lot of the marshalette um the vast well maybe not the vast majority but a, a good hefty percentage of them were not intended for military life and another one of the sort of recurrent themes seems to be the loss of their fathers either in youth or in adolescence and this is true of Bernadotte again so he was born in Po in January 1763, which makes him Gascon by birth and very much Gascon by personality. Um, he adheres to literally every stereotype. 
and his birth life actually is, is still extant. You can visit it and you'll find the tree colour and the Swedish flag flying in unison appropriately. Um, but he was the son of Henri Bernadotte, who was a prosecutor at the Royal Court of Justice in Pau. And he was, he was named Jean-Baptiste. They added the Baptiste later to um, differentiate him from his brother, also called Jean, and they called him Jean Evangeliste. So you can see the theme. But the intention very much was for Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte that he would follow his father into the legal profession. And he was apprenticed to an attorney at 14. So he very much was on the, the bottom rungs of a legal career. And his father died when he was 17. And that essentially was the end of said legal career. And he decided he was for the army. And he'd been bowled over by a recruiting sergeant who'd come through Paupo and who'd apparently known his family and had got chatting to the, the young Bernadotte and had let him try on his jacket. And it was agreed by both parties that it actually became him very well, that he suited it, he was very smart um, and that he'd make a very dashing soldier. And then the, so the story goes, the recruiting sergeant said, I'm, I send you off now to become a Marshal of France. But I suspect that's apocryphal because I think it would just be a little bit too good to be true. And off he went. And he enlisted. It always, this does kind of... So there are two things I want to pick up on here. This, this father connection, this is speculation. To what extent do you think a gravitation towards Napoleon is kind of an indication of seeking a fatherly figure in, in these men's lives? Or is that just, is it just happenstance that, you know, is this just a product of society that, you know, people die, you know, and so actually it's not that remarkable that all of these guys lose their father. It just kind of struck me as an odd one because we often talk about Napoleon and his ability to work people and play them and the tug the ear and that kind of paternal side to his character that he could draw upon. It's an I've never thought about it that way before. I mean, obviously Napoleon was younger than, than most of them with the exception of uh, Marmot and, and Davu, but it's it's an interesting point. I've, I've yeah genuinely never thought about it that way, and it does seem to be a a strange kind of recurrence because also another um, sort of young man who lost his father young and wound up in a career not he wasn't intended for was of course Wellington. So it's a it's a funny old sort of set of coincidences that set these characters off on the path that they will actually take them to the Napoleonic Wars. The other one that struck me when I was prepping for this was he's he's intended for the law. That's a a profession that has a certain status attached to it. You know, that is not rank and file of the army during the Ancien Regime. And so it really kind of surprised me that he makes this jump. Basically, he takes a step backwards in social mm -hmm. status in order to kind of almost kind of act on this whim. There's a kind of impetuosity there. Yeah. Um, that, that surprised me quite a lot. How do the family react to this idea that he's just upstixed and gone and joined the army and, and kind of done that thing that you wouldn't expect somebody of that status? Those means and that education, let's not forget, he's educated to become a lawyer. You wouldn't expect this of someone like that. No, I haven't found that much detail about his his remaining family. He was the third child surviving for in infancy and obviously his his mother was left behind um 
but I have in accounts of other marshals who've done very similar and turned their backs on what would have been considered really safe careers to go to war. It it was um, been noted multiple times that it was sort of the the despair of their mothers because if you have somebody ready to go into this very prestigious or at least very safe career, I can't imagine it goes down particularly well. Although obviously nobody ever considering he'd have finished his military career on the Swedish throne. This is true. I mean, it does end up going quite well for him. Let's let's not forget that. Um, but it it doesn't. He doesn't kind of get gifted this on a silver platter. This is earned. Uh, let's bear in mind this is ancien regime when he starts his career. He has no pretensions of, for all that we have this probably apocryphal comment about send you off to become a marshal of France. In reality, he wouldn't necessarily have expected to make that jump. His goal would be, if he was career-minded, would be non-commissioned officer ranks, end up as sergeant major, who knows beyond that, um, but, you know, an expectation of it, your career peaking at sergeant major mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been unusual. So he he does incredibly well. Talk us through that, that rise at pre obviously revolution and all the rest of it. So as you say, his his early career actually is a very positive one. He was noted as being extremely diligent. He was quick to learn. He was smart. He was attentive. He was well turned out and he was very keen to do well. Um, so he ended up serving 11 years in the ranks before he was commissioned. Um, he became a corporal in 1785. Three months later, he was a sergeant. Um, at the age of 25, he was a sergeant major. And um, ju but the, just in the outbreak of the revolution, he was regimental sergeant major, which was as high as he possibly could have gone. And that was still under the age of 30. And when you consider that promotion was by no means as rapid as it would be under the revolution, that's a pretty impressive, you know, CV. And he was very well regarded by his men. Um, they called him Sergeant Belgian, um, because he was very well turned out. And apparently they thought he had good legs, which is, you know, there's worse nicknames to have. I mean, it's a nice asset to have, right? Yeah. I mean, Mura um, made the most of a good thigh game. So so why not Bernadotte? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a, a very promising career. And it was in 1791. 11 years after he first enlisted so that as you say this isn't somebody who's just sort of breezed in and been awarded a commission he has done the grafting he was first commissioned as lieutenant there are a couple of things to draw out here one is the discipline element um i think and this is something that obviously will feed through into our discussions i imagine later but i get the impression this is a guy who would have liked the lash uh, and would have been almost kind of Wellingtonian in his dissemination mm -hmm. of the lash, given the opportunity, obviously, different system in the French army, so opportunities often not there. But it, talk us through that kind of stickler for discipline. Why do we have any sense of, of why and where that comes from and kind of examples of it? He, he was just not as being particularly efficient in his dealings. He liked things in good order. So I think you're probably right in that there are sort of parallels or 
similarities with Wellington. He liked the job done and he liked it done well, on time, efficiently. He abhorred looting, and this takes it a little bit further um, in his career, but he abhorred looting. He would brook no interference with private property. He expected his men to follow his example and behave, and it was probably the sole thing that he and Marshal Davout ever agreed on, because they hated each other, but they were both very much about good behaviour and it meant that both their respective corps could be trusted to do a job and not wreak havoc on the population they were passing through. Yeah, you can't help but wonder if the legal training within him might be part of the reason why he was one of these people who had a, an issue with people being... Um, What's, the, what's a euphemistic way of putting this? People being inventive with whether or not something was uh, an item that belonged in their pocket or not. Um, because, of course, for folks who aren't familiar, there is this kind of concept with Ancien Regime society that um, property is kind of everything. And there's talk in some historian circles about a deification of property rights within the law, i.e. this idea that you protect the fact that people own stuff before anything else. And that's why you see some of the harshest punishments for things like theft um, within the non-military mm-hmm. legal system. So it's it's curious, it's a curious one in terms of whether or not that is a, a feeder through from that. But in any case, we'll, we'll talk more about that in due course. Um, the one that, the anecdote that's really sprung to mind from my reading was an instance during the revolution when um, some individuals start complaining uh, and they want certain things out of um, Bernadotte, and uh, I forget who it is who's. Um, th- this is the one, yeah. And uh, and so they've got this um, revolutionary um, kind of inspector, if you like. The, the this guy is sort of there to to make sure that everybody's kind of pro-revolution, and anybody who's not is going to be weeded out. And you know, the, <laughs> what's going to happen to them in the long run? Um, and so these these two guys pitch up and they're um, complaining about the conditions and they want changes. And Bernadotte is is called for, just pulls out the flat of his sword, just starts whacking them with it until they naff off. And and this completely baffles the inspector, but it kind of makes the point. Okay, this this guy's on our side. He's 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 not kind of letting anybody get away with anything. Um, which is why you kind of get this sense that well, if he's prepared to physically beat people in the presence of some incredibly senior people in the French government he's he's quite a stickler for discipline um, and we should stay with that kind of revolutionary period element shouldn't we because um, it's quite obviously it's part of the reason why a number of the marshals mm. have that meteoric rise um, so talk us through that transition first of all from NCO to if you like, CO, commissioned officer. Yeah, so he became a lieutenant, as I say, in 1791, after 11 years in the ranks. Um, Some of his first service was in Corsica, funnily enough. Um, And he just kind of tying us quite neatly in with the topic of his temper. Um, One of his early major engagements was at, and I'm probably pronouncing this horrifically, um, Ruselheim, and in the French advance guard, they started to panic and some of the men sort of started backing away and it, they were on the verge of having a bit of a retreat. And what follows is from Bernadotte's own account. 
I shouted, sometimes cursed, and I begged and commanded, but my voice went unheard. Bullets flew all around, and I escaped many by striking the muskets aside with the point of my sword. I rushed to the head of the battalion, whose conditions had become critical, and my horse fell, but I did not lose my head. Soldiers, I shouted, assembled here. There must be no more retreating. You can make a stand here, I know it. Your bayonets and your courage are your defence. Those who flee are unworthy of freedom. We will stand fast at our posts and die too, if need be, with the cry, long live the Republic, long live the nation, form up. And there's quite a lot more. And he essentially says, a speech-making, convincing decision, regained obedience to orders were the work of a minute. Um, and the soldiers sort of rallied to his cause. And he, he claims, anyway, he saved the day. But that is a sort of recurrent theme in Bernadotte's career in that he makes an excellent speech. He is very, very good. And they use the term sort of his gasconades, his sort of very emotive outbursts that we associate with, um, you know, the inhabitants of that part of France. And he gives sort of grandiose proclamations and he's very very good at you know being very charismatic and getting his men back on side which is something that does not massively endear him to Napoleon in the future because he doesn't always say what Napoleon wants him to say and very often goes against Napoleon's wishes but he's very good at sort of turning the situation around and um, rallying his men and on another occasion when he start had started climbing the ranks and we'll come to the his sort of major year in a minute he had been appointed the colonel of the 71st Demi Brigade, who were not very much to his satisfaction. And on another occasion, when his soldiers were retreating, he was so incandescent with rage, he ripped off his own epaulets, threw them at some of the retreating soldiers and basically said, I'm absolutely disgusted to be your officer. If you're going to behave like that, I don't want to be associated with you. And, you know, was almost apoplectic with fury. Um, and, yeah, he, he was a very emotive, temperamental man. Yeah, it comes across. I mean, it's interesting that we talk about sort of those Gascony stereotypes, not least because I believe I was reading that D'Artagnan may have been uh, kind of crafted from Alexandre Dumas' kind of studies of Bernadotte and, and what he was like. Is, is that right? I've read that as well. I, I don't know how true that is um but it's an interesting concept because when you think of d'artagnan and the three musketeers sort of coming to paris and he immediately challenges the three musketeers to duels um it's not wholly unlike bernadotte who could have picked a fight with his own shadow um if he'd found enough cause he was not a man to back away from an argument no, uh, I think we'll, we'll see plenty of examples of that in, in just a second. But let's talk about how we go from a guy who's a captain to becoming a general in the space of a single year. This yeah. is kind of dizzying in terms of how rapid. Not to say that it's undeserved. He demonstrates why, you know, that that faith was was well placed. And he'd certainly proven himself earlier in his career, but why is it so quick? Because that's insane. Captain to general in less than 12 months. Yeah, 1794, his ascension is meteoric and faster than Napoleon himself ever had gone through those ranks. And I, I don't think comparable to any other marshal either. Um, it's just sort of almost impossible to get your head around. Um, so he began the year as a captain. Um, 
in April, he became the colonel of that 71st Demi Brigade, who he he really didn't care very much for at all. Um, later that year, he played a very major part in the Battle of Fleurus. It was primarily Jourdan's victory, though, and the sort of thing that really struck me about Bernadotte is when we look at all the other marshals, you can more or less pinpoint a finest hour or a sort of premier victory. And I'm not really sure Bernadotte has one of those. He plays of an important part in a lot of other people's finest hours. I'm not entirely convinced he has one himself, um, but he did, he, he yet yeah, was incremental to the, instrumental, even not incremental, to the victory at um, Fleurus and was rewarded by being promoted general of division. So by the end of 1794, he was Sergeant Belgium no more. He was General Belgium. Do we have a sense of how he dealt with that change? Because for all that, yes, he goes on to demonstrate ability to go from you're a captain to suddenly you're a general of division. The, the duties are just leagues apart. So I remember reading that, you know, the following year is, is very much about, you know, consolidation and kind of focusing on, on his duties. I think he's made Commandant of Maastricht, I want to say, at one mm -hmm. point. Um, so does he take time to adjust or does he just seem to be born to this? He, yeah, he just seems to be one of those people who has a very strong natural ability. He was a good administrator as well. Um, and there seems to sort of be a, a great divide in the marshalette there. You have the ones who were excellent administrators, Bertier, obviously, but um, Davu, uh, Mortier, Lefebvre was a good administrator and so on. And the ones to whom staff work was not their, or administration generally was not their forte. But Bernadotte does well. He is, again, efficiency seems to be his watchword. He's very organised. He's high standards. He likes a job. Uh, done well but again demonstrates a fanatically Gascon temper he once challenges his own chief of staff to a duel because he thinks the man has taken a bribe um, and when he um, marched into Altdorf um, the, the staff or the academics from the university had come to him and sort of pleaded to be recused the need to take billeted troops and he just goes off on one and sort of tells them to get back to university and do as expected or he'll burn their whole flipping university to the ground. Um, so diplomacy, perhaps not just his great points um, in the way that administration and organisation are, but he does have a very keen sense of honour to complement that because when the Parisian press um, actually incorrectly claim that he had sacked Nuremberg and sort of had over exaggerated the commotion at Altdorf. He's so disgusted and irate that he's on the cusp of resigning and sort of has to be talked out of it. So touchy, yes, argumentative also, but he he has a very keen sense of his own personal reputation and won't stand for it being sullied. He's also quite politically savvy, which is something that we we should talk about because this is the French revolutionary period. You know, governments are coming and going with almost alarming regularity. Um, and it's, he's present at Fructidor. Uh, I'm gonna ruin the pronunciation here, Prairau and Brumaire. And very deliberately, it seems, just doesn't get involved. 
um, kind of looks almost like the archetypal fence sitter mm-hmm. in terms of knowing that whichever way it goes, you don't want to have been on the wrong side of it. So better to just not take a side um, and, and then deal with the fallout of that, because, of course, better to have done nothing than to have opposed the winning side. Yeah, absolutely. He he was the sort of fencer extraordinaire, but he was incredibly politically savvy, definitely more so than any other of the marshals. The only one who sort of comes within a league of him is Marshal Suchet, um, but in some ways certainly even more savvy than Napoleon. He can sort of read sometimes situations better than Napoleon can. Um, and yeah, so he, in each case, he is very keen to make it clear that he is steadfastly loyal to the Republic. He is not effectively going to get his hands dirty unless he is given direct orders by the, the government that he needs to do so. And these orders never come. And he had clashed with Napoleon pre-Brumaire um, in Italy, where he claimed that he had been um, you know, sent to blockade Gradisca and he claimed Napoleon was only sending him there because Napoleon was jealous of him. He then achieved his objective and Napoleon berated him for being too reckless. And that whole interaction just sets the tone for their entire working relationship. Um, but N- Napoleon did directly appeal to him at Brumaire um, for his support. And he's not the only marshal who declines to support Napoleon. I mean, some of them were directly opposed to him, Jourde almost, for example. Um, but he he won't commit. He very carefully keeps his hands clean until he fully understands which way the wind is going to blow. And then he goes with it at the last minute. And it stands him in good stead. It's, it's not a period where taking risks necessarily always paid off. I mean, there were plenty of generals, obviously Napoleon, where ambition and and risk was infinitely rewarded, but they weren't shy of chucking generals at the scaffold. There were plenty of good commanders, good generals were, went for the chop for being, um, you know, too reckless, too ambitious, or conversely, not reckless and not ambitious enough. It was a very fine line to walk and Bernadotte walked it very, very well. He absolutely did. What you're saying there actually reminds me of a, a technique I use to teach my students about just how fine a line it could be in terms of getting it right at a very specific moment in time. Um, and just kind of, and what we, what we did was trace Napoleon's career and, you know, kind of, can you survive the revolution? And so I take them off to Egypt and not literally, obviously. <laughs> um, and, you know, the abandonment of the armies is the right call, the wrong call through to the Brumaire coup and what's the right call, what's the wrong call. Um, and, you know, you haven't supported the government back along, so you end up being executed, all of these kinds of things. And I once had a student who literally made the wrong call every single time. It must have been executed about four times in the course of this exercise. It, it was quite hilarious, but it just yeah. goes to show mm. how dangerous this is. Well, when you look at the rest of the martial, when you look at how close some of the rest of them had, I mean, we discussed in the Davu episode how close Davu had come and his family um, to being arraigned and, and sent to the scaffold. Jourdan's arrest warrant was actually signed by Robespierre. And it was only through the intervention of another officer that Jourdan kept his head. Um, Kellerman was imprisoned. 
uh, at a point during the revolution as well and only really staved off execution because they kept putting other people in front of them. It was a very, very dangerous time. And I mean, Napoleon himself was at one point a very close associate of Augustin Robespierre. And he was very lucky that he was able to distance himself in the way that he did, or he could have gone likewise. Do we have any sense of his political leanings and what he believed in, or, or was it a case that he, he wasn't overly fussed? Just, you know, kind of leave me out of it. On the face of it, he was certainly volubly Jacobin. And he allegedly had a tattoo which says, some sources differ, either death to kings or death to tyrants. And I really love the idea of it, but most Swedish sources seem to say that that's a legend and that he had no such tattoo. Although it would have been terrific to have a king with the tattoo death to kings. It would have been a, a fairly interesting sort of plot twist, but he was certainly on the face of it volubly Jacobin when he needed to be. Yeah, it's remarkable how often people are when they need to be and then, then uh, can be something else when, when the occasion arises. We've talked a bit already about the, the difficult relationship with Napoleon. One thing that I do want to pick up on is that it, it gets worse, right? Um, and, and that's tied in with the marriage to Desiree. If I, again, apologies, um, if I remember this rightly, he meets Desiree kind of by chance when she's 12 and he's 25, I want to say. Um, and then their paths cross subsequently. So perhaps we should probably talk about the marriage first and then why this kind of exacerbates the situation with Napoleon. Yeah, he had um, supposed to be billeted at their family home in his early career. And Desiree had apparently noted that in her, her diary. But yes, Desiree Clary, I mean, she's all you could do a whole hour on her life alone, never mind just as a marshal's wife, um, had been engaged to Napoleon, who she'd met after her sister had become engaged to Joseph Bonaparte. Um, and it. <sighs> Well, you can use the term engagement very loosely. Napoleon treated the poor lassie like a self-improvement project. When you look at the letters he sent her, it was all about what she should read and what she should do and how she should improve herself. And it, he did sort of treat her like a project. And there was nothing like the sort of incredibly passionate correspondence he had with Josephine. And of course, the minute Josephine comes on the scene, he's finished with Desiree. But he did maintain a regard for her and of course along comes Bernadotte and they get married which then makes Bernadotte brother-in-law to Joseph Bonaparte so he is an extended member of the Bonaparte clan very much in the same way that Davu is because he's become Pauline Bonaparte's brother-in-law um, so it's all a bit fractious because ultimately they are never bosom friends ever their relationship is continuously rocky. Napoleon takes every opportunity he can to criticise Bernadotte, sometimes fairly, quite often unfairly. Bernadotte takes every single opportunity he can to undermine Napoleon, you know, very deliberately, very provocatively. Um, you know, he, he issues proclamations that clash with what Napoleon has said. Um, on one occasion when they're supposed to send... Um, sort of dispatches back to the directory. Bernadotte sends his own, um, which sort of 
countermands them of what Napoleon has said instead of putting them through Napoleon. And they both treat Desiree appallingly because they use her to manip they manipulate her and they use her against to play you know each other off because Bernadotte knows that she's retained a regard that Napoleon's retained a regard for her obviously Napoleon realizes that she is now Bernadotte's wife so they both sort of wheedle and push her and try and sort of make her piggy in the middle as they play her off against each other and Ultimately, I think if you if you were asking Napoleon to rate his marshals, even pre-St. Helena, Bernadotte was probably the one he cared about the least. In Lannes and Bessières and um, Marmont, there was very genuine bonds of friendship, and I would probably say he genuinely loved all three. In Davu and Messina and Suchet and Soult and Ney, he could have a respect for their martial abilities. Bernadotte was neither friend, and though he had a, a good career, nor was he a brilliant general. If we were going to rank the marshals in terms of ability, I'm usually putting Bernadotte somewhere around lower middle. I certainly don't put him anything like near Messina or Davu or Ney or Soult. So it was a funny old kind of position to be in because he had no claim on Napoleon's friendship and only limited claim on his professional regard. And they just were not two men who were suited to working together. The the next question, I'm afraid, is a, a predictable one, which is, why bother? Why 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 keep it going if you hate each other this much? Why in in Bernard's case not resign? Why in Napoleon's case? I mean, we'll we'll get to the why elevate him to a marshal, but why not just get rid of the guy? You know, make him redundant make him resign put him on half pay send him back to a, a nice little chateau somewhere job done yeah, yeah. because from what you say you know ability this isn't sort of your your top five marshals that we're dealing with here so why is the inclination to keep with it ultimately they needed each other Bernadotte was popular he was not the best of all the generals but he was very well regarded particularly by his men he had a good reputation um, and by very carefully fence-sitting, he hadn't really peeved off any particular faction. He'd kept his, his hands clean. And Napoleon needed decent generals, and he couldn't afford to, you know, sort of isolate um, big groups of the, um, the army by getting rid of popular generals. And equally, Bernadotte, in his sort of, typical savviness realized that after Brumaire Napoleon was the direction of France and he could either go with it or be left behind and ultimately he chose to go with it and he benefited from it of course because despite the fact that I've just said about Napoleon not having massive regard for him and certainly not being a, a friend he was as generous to the marshals he wasn't fond of as he was to the ones he genuinely loved and Napoleon uh, Bernadotte was the first of the marshalette besides Berthier to be made a prince. He was made Prince of Pontecorvo. So he, you know, he he wasn't being incredibly ill-treated. He was making a sort of tidy profit in terms of endowments and, and, and titles. And um, I mean, that was much to, to Desiree Chagrin because she thought she was gonna have to leave France when they when they got that title, foreshadowing of things to come. But relationship of convenience 
probably they, they needed each other. Interesting, the way that the pragmatism comes to the fore there where it's needed. Um, we should talk about battlefield record, especially having sort of said, well, he's not perhaps the greatest. Um, Arishtat is one that we'll get to because we need to talk about the, the Davu situation, I suspect, in the run-up to that. But there's obviously a span of time from, from what we've just talked about, you know, the Brumaco through to Arishtat. So talk us through that phase of his career and the route towards the, the marshal, say. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, his sort of pre or early Marshall's career was pretty positive. Um, he certainly, he played a, a good role at Austerlitz. But again, we typically call that Sult or one of Sult's finest hours. So again, we have this sort of recurrent theme that he renders good service, but he never really gets to be he's sort of always the bridesmaid, never the bride to kind of use the cliche. Um, so yeah, so he um, is stationed in Hanover. He um, brought an end to loot, looting there because various other uh, French generals and marshals had liberally been lining their pockets. And as I say, you can, whatever you can criticize Bernadotte for, that is definitely not one of them. He certainly behaved with personal integrity for the most part. Um, and then he took command of the first corps and commanded the left flank at Austerlitz and Napoleon still found things to criticize. He basically said Bernadotte's, the speed of his advance was too slow and he uh, accused him of crossing the Danube a day late. And that, that is just basically the continual theme, even when he does reasonably well, there's always something to criticize. So it's, yeah, just just not the, in any way, one of the most harmonious working relationships of the Marshallette. In fact, I'd probably go so far as to say, of all the relationships Napoleon had with all of the Marshalls, this was the worst one. Do we know the reason behind giving him the baton? You know, because, I mean, is, is it just as simple as what you were saying earlier, that this is the guy who carries the army or portions of the army with him so it looks good to give the guy his baton or uh, because uh, from what you're saying that there's always a but which therefore means that if you don't have that high point you don't have that moment where you obviously are gonna kind of turn around and go here's your baton so so talk us through that so again i think there's the element of convenience he couldn't afford to make an uh, a true enemy of Bernadotte. But I also think when we talk of pragmatism, nobody was shrewder in terms of pragmatism than Napoleon. And if your enemy, or we'll call him the frenemy of Napoleon, is dependent on you for endowments and titles and the um, continued sort of nice lifestyle for your wife, of whom Napoleon is very fond, that, that pays pays off in the end because it is through Napoleon that Bernadotte goes from being ultimately good general to marshal and dignity of the new Napoleonic empire even and it pays off so it's through Napoleon that he continues up the societal ladder so I figure if if 
you've people you're not entirely sure of, it's not a bad thing if they're dependent on your goodwill for their income and their titles. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, this is true. Uh, Devo, we've, we've got to talk Devo within this. Why, 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 why? My God, they hated each other. Um, so Dav- Bernadotte had been under observation by Davu and he had discovered that Davu had read some of his correspondence and went ballistic oh, and dear. had basically threatened to horsewhip Davu. And from that point on, there was no love lost. I mean, Davu wasn't a particularly um, convivial fellow either and made enemies just as easily as Bernadotte did and he Bernadotte also had a long-standing feud with Berthier because upon his arrival in Italy he arrested one of Berthier's best friends for insubordination and that began their feud as well so they sort of existed in a sort of mutual trio of hatred because they all hated each other did anybody like him? I mean, genuinely, we reach a point where you start to kind of wonder, does he have any friends at all? He was well regarded by the men he commanded, but amongst the martial, you sort of see all these other little pockets of friendships. So you have Murat and Bessier, and you have Davu and Udno and various sort of other, you know, convivial relationships where they've, they have their personal enmities, but they also have very good working relationships. And the, the interesting thing about Bernadotte is he doesn't seem to have that amongst his peers. He's, as I say, there there are men who serve with him who regard him very well and who think very highly of him. And he certainly doesn't have a stain in his character for being a spiteful or cruel or, um, you know, unpleasant commander. But he doesn't seem to have that bond of friendship. I think he was a very difficult man to be friends with. It was incredibly yeah. touchy. It, it sounds it, and it makes it all the more remarkable that he doesn't kind of have a monumental fall um, that ends up sort of seeing him either permanently retired forcibly or, or even, um, you know, kind of brought before a charge of treason or, or something to that effect. It's um, it's because you need friends to, to, keep, to get ahead in this period. And, and sure, he, he gets promoted on sheer ability, and that's great, but just as well really because patronage was never going to be something that was going to help him out because he just couldn't seem to maintain those friendships um shall we talk our start then 
Yes. So this seems to be the thing. Whenever I put anything up about Marshall Bernadotte, the comments are always traitor, traitor, traitor. And the offence seems to be that they also think he was a traitor to Davout as well as Napoleon. But, and there is a gigantic but, in as much that I think you can fairly condemn Bernadotte for being touchy and a poor cooperator and generally a bit unpleasant in quite a lot of ways, I don't think you can say Erstadt was a fault of spite. It was largely an issue. Um, similarly to the way we discussed Grouchy, it was a comms failure. And when you look at the orders that were um, given out at Erstadt, that's primarily the cause of the confusion. So there's a really, really great um, summary of all the kind of critical arguments pro and for Bernadotte at Erstadt on um, the Napoleon series online. And it's called um, Bernadotte 1806, Is There a Case for the Defence? And it's really interesting reading. So it sort of really objectively, critically analyzes the orders, the timings, what we can fairly deduce was um, the result of the issue of these orders. So we know that obviously pre-Yena, Napoleon was anticipating taking on the full might of the Prussian army um, and that he miscalculated and it was Marshal Davu who ran slap ban into them. But if we look at the um, orders, they were issued based on Napoleon's calculation of what he expected to happen. Now, it's not Napoleon's fault that that was wrong, but it did influence where people were. So if we look at the orders that were sent out on the 12th of October, um, we see the first one, give orders to Marshal Davout to leave his position for Nuremberg, where he must arrive as quickly as possible, always holding his troops ready to fight. And then various other details, Prince Mura and Marshal Bernadotte are also ordered to Nuremberg, but they were to follow a different road. Um, so there's no details with regard to the concept of the operations. It is just, you go this way, you go that way. And um, the, the kind of key focus is on Davu. He must get there first. He's sort of the essential cog in the wheel. And then Berthier sent another order to Mura, um, basically advising him on the route to take. And he's told he's going to find Davu. He's told nothing about Bernadotte's location or Bernadotte's core. And then, as I say, the, the key thing is that Bertie mentions Davu first. He's to arrive as quickly as possible. He's got his, his road lined out. Um, so he's clearly vital to the success of encircling the army. It's not the others. So you can forgive them for assuming that that was going to be the case. And if we look at the orders sent out on the 14th, um, Davu receives the following. The emperor has recognised a Prussian army which stretches a league away before and on the heights of Jena as far as Weimar. He proposes to attack it on the morrow and he orders Marshal Davu to proceed to Apolda in order to fall on the rear of that army. He leaves the marshal his choice of route, provided he takes part in the fight. And then there's the postscript. If Marshal Bernadotte is with you, you can march together. But the emperor hopes that he will be in the position which he has pointed out to him at Donberg. So it turns out, because Bernadotte has basically done what he was told to, um, they're opposite sides of Nuremberg. 
Um, and Bernadotte has not received any other orders telling him to do anything else. So he's exactly where Napoleon told him to be, when Napoleon told him to be, and with no possible expectation that Marshal Davout is just going to walk right slap bang into the main Prussian force. Now, it's entirely likely, almost certain, that he will have heard the cannon of Erstadt. And so what I think you can fairly chide Bernadotte is to say that he could potentially have marched to the sound of the cannon equally. He should have probably been able to hear the cannon at Jena. So he could have taken his corps in one direction or the other. So you can fairly say he showed a lack of initiative or that you can fairly say, um, you know, he was too cautious. But the chief complaint very often seems to be that he withheld his support to Davu out of pure spite. And I don't think that's accurate. It's interesting. Is, is the premise for that just purely that they have a fractious relationship and therefore, you know, the rumour mill can work? Or is there more to it? Are there sort of snide comments that are made either prior or after that kind of allude to something and give fan the flames, if you like, of that gossip? Yeah, Napoleon absolutely does, because he says afterwards famously that if it were not for concern of Dizzyly, he would have had Bernadotte shot. He would have had him court-martialed, and the necessary result of that would be that he was shot. So it purely comes from Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon. <laughs> Stirring the pot, who would have thought it? Um... We, we have a, a note in the, the, the show notes. Yes, prep is done for this. Um, Rachel does a, a marvellous job in kind of pointing me in, in the directions of where we need to go with this. And the note is treatment of Swedish prisoners after Lübeck. Yeah, so... We've got to talk about this. Bern and as much as Bernadotte's personality sort of holds him back because he gets into arguments continuously his sense of personal integrity and the honor with which he treats prisoners fundamentally changes the course of his life so he was obviously very much castigated for his role in Erstadt and he sort of semi-redeems himself by taking part in the pursuit of the three marshals where Napoleon says he's too reckless. So you do get the sense that realistically he probably couldn't win in Napoleon's estimation. Um, but he takes a number of Swedish prisoners and his conduct to them is everything that is decent and civilized and honorable and humane. And when they return to Sweden, they do so with an excellent memory of this French officer who conducted himself so well um, behaved so civilly to them and this pays off it when when the crisis the succession crisis occurs um in sweden and they need a a french sort of name to put to the the heir to the crown he's the one that several swedish officers who were members of the swedish nobility put forward interesting and so the big one arrives um <laughs> because we were always going to get to this weren't we the 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 succession crisis and the selection of Bernadotte and we have talked about this before in fairness but I think it's so important and integral to the story that we have to kind of properly unpick this so 
the upshot, quite obviously, is that Bernadotte ends up as the the ruler of Sweden, and then promptly chooses to act like the ruler of Sweden rather than the puppet of Napoleon. Now we talked about puppets in the last episode with Graham on, on precisely this point about at what point do you, as an individual, with your own thoughts and um, priorities, prioritize when you are crowned this idea that actually, yes, you you probably need to do the job that you've been given and you need to show loyalty to that job. And at what point do you just go, mm, no, actually, I'm just going to let Napoleon control me? Um, bear in mind that, you know, these are men in an era where if you were somebody's puppet, you would have been viewed as particularly unmasculine. So and we're talking about a Gascon here, who is like the archetypal D'Artagnan-esque figure who doesn't like being pushed around. So is it all that surprising? Not in the slightest. And this seems to be the dichotomies in Napoleon's character really interest and fascinate me because he'd be on one hand so shrewd and then the other hand staggeringly naive when he would install all these new crowned heads of Europe and then be astonished that they didn't govern in the interests of France. And surely nobody in their right mind can expect that Bernadotte would have done so for numerous reasons. Firstly, he had no blood claim to this throne. He was offered it and he wasn't actually the top candidate. Um, there were several other names put about. Napoleon particularly wanted it to go to his stepson, Eugène, who, knowing what we know of him, would have probably made a really good king because he was a fundamentally decent individual. But um, Bernadotte was the only one willing to convert from Catholicism to Lutheranism, which advanced him up the, the ladder. Um, and Napoleon eventually gave his blessing. He took back Bernadotte's French nationality, released him from his oath of allegiance. So he's not a Frenchman anymore. He is a Swede. And the bit that always really astonishes me is that people seem to forget that Bernadotte became an officer during the French Revolution when one of the chief criticisms lobbied at Marie Antoinette was that she prioritised Austrian interests over French. She was called L'Autrichienne, the Austrian bitch, and that was the chief complaint they had about her. And look what they did to her. He had seen what could happen to a ruler who was seen to govern in the interests of a country elsewhere and not their own. He had been given the crown. It was almost a contractual relationship. What was given could be taken away. And ultimately, it was never going to work. Their fr French interests and Swedish interests were diametrically opposed. So Sweden, the Swedes wanted Bernadotte, who was obviously seen as a successful military officer, to take back territories. They wanted to either recover Finland or Norway. Now, Bernadotte is savvy enough to understand that going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Alexander and Russia over Finland is not going to work. Norway is a much more realistic prospect, but Norway belongs to Denmark and Denmark is an ally of Napoleon's. So that, by the very nature, sets them against Napoleon. However, Napoleon wants Sweden to practice the continental system, which was ultimately going to cripple its trade. And so like every other example where he tried to see forcibly um, input the continental system it massively backfires because they go stuff that I'm going to do my own thing it just doesn't work and then Napoleon invades Swedish Pomerania 
there is no option where this works out well because their interests were diametrically opposed. And of course, he is going to react from the point of view of a Swede. He's not going to go, oh, well, but, you know, France, yay us. He's looking after his new crown. He is looking after his new people and reacting as they expect him to. If he had done any differently, we'd be talking about Marshall Bernadotte, the deposed king of Sweden, not Marshall Bernadotte, the founder of the extant Swedish dynasty. You make that point incredibly well about Marie Antoinette, and it's not one that I'd ever dwelt on before, but it's, it's absolutely key when you, you pause and, and think about why would he, and, and certainly, okay, yes, you could very easily, and you can see why people draw this, it's almost too easy, right? You see the fractious relationship with Napoleon, you see the fact that the guy then turns his back on Napoleon, and you go, well, it's all just consistent, the guy never liked him anyway, he's ungrateful, He's just a traitor, boo Bernadotte. It's a very kind of simple, you know, draw a straight line between the two happy days. But you've got to think about it from perspective. And this is one of the things that I often try and push in this podcast that we use perspective. And this is where people rightly pull me up when I bash Napoleon, sometimes a little bit too much. And they will turn around and say, but yes, consider perspective X. You know, to what extent did person X benefit or type of person x benefit from napoleon's rule and there are people who benefited from napoleon's rule of course there are that's a given but if you're going to use that perspective stance you also need to apply it universally which therefore means that you've got to put yourself in bernadotte's shoes and it's not an easy position to be in actually and i want to get on to desiree as well because that's going to be a really interesting kind of you know what's her reaction to all of this um but before we get there you know consider yourself as bernadotte you're given this. It's a really weird situation to be in. It, Brits who are um, listening, compare this to, for example, Charles II, when he's restored to the throne of England in 1660. He is gifted that crown, and that has a fundamental impact on how he rules, because he knows that he can't push the situation. He has to be governed to an extent by Parliament, even though he's king. It's a different situation, but the, the concerns... And the, the way in which that influences your mindset are absolutely the same. You know, if you're going to be given this, as you say, it can be taken away. So sure, you've got to put any prior loyalties to one side. And you've got to think pragmatically and you've got to think about priorities. And the priorities actually in this situation are not being kicked out and potentially losing your head in the process. And as you say, he's not French anymore. He's had no. to renounce that. Yeah. So... The point is, and you've kind of summed that up, we're not writing a TV show here. We're not doing a play. This isn't the case where we can sort of make him an Iago or, you know, a, a nice, convenient Claudius villain. He's not somebody who's been lurking at stage left with sort of villainous ambition. This is somebody who's put in a place where he has to govern within the confines of his role, where he has to act on his I'm going to call it a contract, I lecture in business. So he's accepting his part of the contractual obligations where he must govern Sweden as appropriate. This isn't a melodrama. This is government. This is real life. And of course, he acts accordingly. Even, you know, the marshals most devoted to Napoleon, there's a limit if you put them in charge of somewhere, how much they can effectively go in blind loyalty. And this is where we start to see the discourse about Marmol. There is a line 
and slavish blind obedience with no critical thought at all, no critical analysis, no balance. It's not really needed in the discussion. It doesn't accomplish anything. It just, that's just argument. It is. Um, and actually it's a grounds to arguably think less of somebody, you know, a lot of these people, these marshals that we've talked about so far, deeply, deeply principled individuals. Um, there, there will, of course, be others that we'll talk about that perhaps were arguably less principled, but Davu, massively principled. Um, and, and Bernadotte, in his own way, he's got his lines that you just yeah. do not cross. And we, we've seen this in, in the discussion that we've had already. Um, so it, it, this idea that, you know, a man who all the way through his career has tried to do a thoroughly competent, decent job with the task that's in front of him should then go and do the same thing as, as you know, the, the ruler. What a surprise. Um, let's talk Desiree, though. Um, I, I'm hearing what you say about it would be interesting to, to do an episode entirely on her life. We, we, we might just make that happen further down the line, actually. But yeah. what was her reaction like when, when Bernadotte tells her, yeah, so um, this, this is my plan. This is what's going to happen. You're, yeah. Because you were talking earlier, you know, she didn't want to have to leave France. No, uh, she when really he, didn't. When he became um, prince. So <laughs> how does it go down? I mean, I imagine kind of uh, a whirlwind and, and things being thrown and, and all sorts. Yeah, I mean, it, what what a life she had. And when I did my blog series on the Marshall's Wives, I kept, hers kept getting longer and longer and longer. And I thought, I'm going to stop somewhere. She was devastated. And she recalled at the time she thought it was another thing like the, the Ponte Corvo title. She thought it was going to be a sort of little dignity, no more. And when it was explained to her that she had to leave France, she was very genuinely devastated. So, and there's a point in, in Chandler, and I don't know whether it's true, but she had to look up Sweden in an atlas. Um, but I'm not quite sure if that's just a little bit of condescension there. Um, but she didn't join him there till 1811. She stayed in France and she did not like it. She clashed very much with um, the elderly queen who thought she was a spoiled little girl, who just detested everything, who wasn't French, was not interested in learning Swedish, was not interested in conforming in any way to the Swedish court. And she basically tried to get out of Sweden at every opportunity. And she came... Um, in 1813, she fled back to Paris, where she lived sort of semi-incognito, if you can call it that, until 1823. So they were apart, like, basically for a decade. And she was living in, in France. She just did not like Sweden at all, and she never did. She had a very, I would say, pretty unhappy later half of her life and if she had been remained Madame la Marechale Bernadotte or even Madame Bonaparte I think she would have had a happier life than she did as a queen. It's yeah we're, I'm sold already it's happening um, not putting a date to it folks but at some point we're going to sit down and we're going to have that chat about Desiree. Um, I'm almost wondering about a sub-series to do with the Marshall's Wives, but I can't impose on you too much. So we'll, we'll have to have a, a conversation about when and where we might make that happen. Um, because it is, it's important, you know, these, 
we talk about these men let's not pretend that i'm not gonna do that um that cliche about behind every man is a is a woman because actually beside every man is an equally important woman and some of these women were real characters um do we know what their relationship was like prior to this though was it always a kind of iffy and, and tempestuous one or was there genuine kind of let's not call it domestic bliss but genuine happiness in in their relationship at times um, I think there was to a degree, but she always called him Bernadotte, even after um, he became the king. And there's an anecdote, and I would have to go and dig it out because I didn't go through very much my notes about Desiree, but there's an anecdote once they are in Sweden and as king, he's thrown a massive tantrum about something. Um, she comes along and basically says, oh, Bernadotte, you're always so dramatic. You know, we can sort it out. So. I don't think it was the most harmonious of all the marshal's relationships because he was, you know, she cleared off back to France for a decade and clearly I think France came first. She was very much attached to it. And certainly in his later life, it was noted that Bernadotte preferred the company of his sort of favorite courtier, Magnus Brahe, um, to the queen. But I think this, they sort of got on with it eventually because when she returned with um, their son's bride for in advance of his wedding, Bernadotte forbade her from leaving Sweden ever again. And she basically was there for the rest of her days and she outlived him. Oh, really? So even after that's in, or, or I want to rabbit hole, well, you shouldn't have put that little teaser in there because now I want to, I want to know why, but I can't, we can't go there. Oh, that, that's infuriating. Well she, well, she outlived him and her son predeceased her. So she, when she died, her grandson was king of Sweden and she became a noted eccentric later in her life. She would sort of sleep all day and get up all night and call people at four in the morning. And I mean, she, it's, it's one interest in life. Okay. Yeah. Um, watch this space, people. That's all I'm going to say. Um, you, you gave us a little teaser there about something that I think we should probably explore further, which is the relationship with count magnus brahe why do they hit it off because we were discussing earlier bernardo doesn't make friends easily you know so for somebody to get on well with this guy does does brahe just have the patience of a saint i i don't know this is something i i always feel that i want to explore more of and then never have the time um but they were genuinely very much attached to each other um to at some point there were there were dips in bernardo's popularity through his kingship and one of the criticisms was that it was Brahe's rule not Bernadotte's rule and that he was sort of being influenced um sort of maliciously it's it's difficult and they I mean it was a very very deep attachment because after Bernadotte's death Brahe wore a ring a mourning ring with both their hair entwined and you can if you google it you can see the ring it's um it's still in existence so it's it's one of those things where you, you can't really accurately speculate because you know was it was it just that they hit it off was it a very deep and sort of emotional friendship was it potentially even something more like you don't know and you can't speculate but it's an it's an interesting avenue that a man who was so poor at making friends made such a devoted one that accusation that you know it's actually Brahe's rule and not Bernadotte's 
it doesn't strike me as consistent with the Bernadotte that we've been talking about. Is there any fairness to to that accusation? No, I don't think so. But when you when you read up on his kingship, he did he became that sort of adage that you become more conservative as you get older, and this sort of virulent Jacobin gets progressively more conservative. And and in his later years, he does some of the stuff we can complain about Napoleon doing he censored the press he became quite authoritarian in some ways so again if you if you're going to criticize one you have to criticize the other it's the balance in it um so he was a successful king in many ways but there there are criticisms he did become very authoritarian another one we have to talk about um is the, the sixth coalition uh, yeah. You know, this this is where it gets properly awkward, right? <laughs> yeah, he's he's fundamental to the forming of the the sixth coalition. He meets with Alexander, and they basically agree that they will recognize each other's territory, and that he will basically allow Bernadotte to have Norway, which pleads uh, pleases the Swedish interests, and ultimately they make war on France. So this general marshal of France is fighting against his, his own comrades. But even amongst the allies, he does have this continuous reputation of not quite ever being where he's needed to be. He didn't get to Isla one time for which he not unreasonably blamed Berthier. He missed Friedland because he was wounded. So he's always just never quite there. And then um, the, the allies sort of chided him for his slow progress um, around the sort of um, Battle of Leipzig and he flies off on one at the British and the Prussians and he reminds the Prussians who won at Lübeck and basically says to the British is this the loyalty that the reward for Sweden's loyalty in supporting you guys um, so Blücher is not particularly enamoured of Bernadotte, he doesn't think very highly of him but ultimately we see the coalition is, is successful and eventually on the, if we can if we can sort of call it if I can be really facetious and call it the Napoleonic Game of Thrones you know there's that line um, that Cersei Lannister says to Ned Stark in the book when you play the Game of Thrones you win or you die two of the marshals played the Game of Thrones Bernadotte and Mira Bernadotte won and he ends the Napoleonic Wars um, in 1814 the, the crown prince of Sweden, who has achieved basically um, what he wants. There's a very quick sort of conquest of Norway. Um, and in 1814, after Napoleon's abdication, he sort of calls on some of his former comrades. And we know that he meets with Ney and he meets with Augereau and Marmont. And he tries to call on the Lefebvre's and who is just my favourite, and I love his wife. And Madame Lefebvre, who very infamously called the Spain a spade, um, announced when he tried to call that she was at home, but she was not at home to turn coats and he could basically get stuffed. Um, Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So, but he, he wasn't always best pleased, because again, as I say, he was a fantastically touchy bloke. He wasn't best pleased with his treatment by the Allies, and when the 100 days comes, he sits out once again. He doesn't get his hands dirty. He says he's given enough. He's done his part. The allies can get on with it. And he, that kind of marks the end of his career. In 1818, he becomes a king. And the, the sort of chief irony is that Napoleon once threw over Desiree. He divorces Josephine because of her infertility. 
And it's Bernadotte's son who marries um, the, the daughter of Eugène. And so Josephine and Desiree, their descendants, are still on the thrones of Europe today. So talk about poetic justice in a way. Ooh, that's got to sting, hasn't it? If you're Napoleon and, and then you have that, if you knew that was how things were going to fall, yes. Um, the, all that effort to build a dynasty and actually it's it's I mean, his ex-wife and his ex-girlfriend that end up being responsible for a, a dynasty that outlasts most of the other European dynasties, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, Wow. There are a few questions I want to pick up on in relation to the, the coalition thing. What, one side comment. I'm not surprised by the sitting out of, of the Seventh Coalition, partly because he's got what he wanted, right? You know, right. he wanted that. Exactly. He wanted that recognition of Norway as Swedish territory. And once he's got that, what more is he going to gain? What more are the allies going to give him that he hasn't got already? You know, where's, where's the value to it? So it doesn't surprise me at all from thinking about this guy as somebody who has a job to do in promoting Swedish interests and having fulfilled them. It's like, yeah, thanks, done now. Um, but the conquest of Norway, how involved is he in that as a military man? Because you say it, it was a straightforward thing. That doesn't overly surprise me. But you can't, I, I, position of ignorance here, full disclosure, I can't help but wonder how kind of hands-on he is in that process of, look, I'm a marshal of France. I know what I'm doing. Just step back. Let me plan the campaign. Let me sort it all out. And, and as a result of that, you know, his skill kind of comes to the fore. Uh, I mean, could you even say that that is his moment where he does shine? Actually, now you've put it that way, yes. So you could say that he does have a finer star in as much that conquest can be it just happens to be a non-napoleonic one it's it's out of the napoleonic theater yeah i never thought about it that way that was that's probably quite fair and again that was the kind of thing he marketed himself to the allies with i understand napoleon's methods i understand warfare i know what i'm doing and and that's how he was able to sort of ingratiate himself with the allies because bear in mind this is a jacobin usurper from their point of view, in some cases, as much as Napoleon was, this he was the son of a lawmaker from Poe. He wasn't, he wasn't a prince. He wasn't born of the, of the blood. So you can understand why they might have been marginally distasteful about having to work alongside Bernadotte. They certainly were working with Murat, um, but it works. Interesting. And with the the active involvement in the wars of the Second Coalition. Does is there any point at which he has to face off against former? I'm not going to call them friends because clearly he didn't have friends among the marshalette, but you know former colleagues, um, and has to kind of play a, a curious game where you know if you're facing your old colleagues, then you got to kind of feel a bit awkward. Do we do we have any of those instances and any indication about how he felt? Uh, yeah, he defeated Marshal Udino in 1813. Um... There, there certainly doesn't seem to be any, any would then fight off against um, Ney. I think he seemed to feel that he was doing his duty and he, he set another one of his big proclamations, um, 
where he sort of appealed to the, the people of France and the soldiers of France and, um, you know, we need to do the right thing. We can't have France be the scourge, and he calls it the scourge of the world, which didn't really go down particularly well with French citizens because that's not the most complimentary thing your country is going to be called. But he certainly seemed to view it as he was doing what he should be doing, and that was his duty. Interesting. It's. I, I think we could probably talk for another solid hour, but I'm conscious of, of the clock already. Um, oh, I, I need more time, even, even though I've got endless time, but I haven't really. Um, there has to be a limit on these things. And we do need to um, just, just talk about the, you've got a, a note here about kingship in 1818. Talk us through that kind of post-Napoleonic era that that phase where you know he has to transition it ultimately well, doesn't have to but does transition ultimately towards a new more kind of ironically napoleonic style of leadership yeah. more, you know let's be okay moment where i am going to be fair you know let's not be surprised by that that's the model of kingship during this period that's mm-hmm. consistent with the other rulers of europe during this time um so fair play i'm not even going to caveat that with my normal arguments about Napoleon and all the rest of it shouldn't be surprised by that um but yeah talk us through that yeah he he's generally accounted a success so they say he, he was a cautious monarch um I quite enjoy this sentence fond of making emotional speeches no change um but he he never quite got to grips with the language he could never really fluently speak Swedish or Norwegian he is preferred language remained French um, but there there were um, you know there were, were peaks and troughs there were certain um, certain periods where his popularity really did plummet there was one at least one assassination attempt um, but by the time of his silver jubilee he'd kind of you know got the public sort of back on board Sweden's generally considered to have prospered um, during his, his reign his reign even um but basically ah here's here's the account i was talking about earlier um when he threatened to deal with a student unrest by making the gutters run with blood you know he was losing his rag and having a massive tantrum uh, that's when desiree says oh bernadotte everybody knows you couldn't even kill a kitten um, turn around and tell a marshal of france nah sit down mate you couldn't even kill a kitten <laughs> So yeah, I mean, he was he was criticised in the liberal press in the 1830s, and this is when we start to see the sort of more authoritarian elements of um, censoring and suppressing the press. Which, again, my point is, if you're going to compare the two, there's there's so many parallels between Bernadotte and, and Napoleon. You can't make fish of one and fowl of the other. If we're going to criticise Napoleon for censoring the press, so too must we criticise. Um, Bernadotte and and just in the way where we sort of can admire Napoleon's ambition and drive and taking power for his own you kind of have to do the same with Bernadotte the only real differences between the two of them was Bernadotte was a savvy politician and Napoleon really wasn't and Bernadotte was an okay general Napoleon was a superlative one other than that there are a lot of different parallels um but yeah so if we if we're going to consider who won the Napoleonic Game of Thrones I would say it's Bernadotte. It's a nice point uh, on which to kind of wrap things up, but I am going to throw one final question out there. Legacy. How would you sum up his legacy? 
It's a funny one because the minute you mention his name in any Napoleonic discourse, he has is regarded by a huge swathe of sort of people who are on the pro-Napoleonic side of the, the fence to be a traitor and is despised. And you look at some of the comments on my recent tweets, Davu should have blood, you know, should have fought a duel with him, Davu should have bloodied his nose and all this kind of comments. Napoleon should have shot him. So his his he had an excellent revolutionary war not quite as successful Napoleonic war because he was very often not what he needed to be not always through his fault but the chief legacy I guess has to be the fact that his descendants still rule the house of Bernadotte is still extant when plenty of other European houses have crumbled Napoleon's dynasty didn't last particularly long um, through the very tragic loss of his only legitimate son. We know what happened to the Romanovs. We know what happened to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So when you look at all the various sort of major figures of the time and their legacies, Bernadotte's about the only one still standing. If we discount right. the British monarchy as well, of course. Sure. But the, the British monarchy goes through a whole series of um, yeah. phases and changes. Absolutely. Um, I said that was the last one. I'm just going to give you the chance to rant, should you wish to. I mean, you're a very kind of calm and collected individual. You're not a Bernadotte, um, certainly from my dealings with you. Um, but the haters, because they do love to come at you. And we said when we prepped this one that they were going to come for you with this one. So I just want to give you the opportunity, because you've been very kind of... Um, measured and thoughtful and hopefully people have listened but just to kind of get your retaliation in first head off those those predictable comments because utmost respect to people if you move in these circles and if you study these periods and you talk about this stuff often enough you end up seeing the same things time and time again um so i'm going to give rachel just the opportunity to head off the common arguments that people often love to throw out there so what would your message be to the inverted commas haters i can do no better than leave you with the, the words of napoleon himself bernadotte had become a sort of swede and he had made no promise to remain true i can accuse him therefore of ingratitude but not of treason and if you want to come with an argument, that's great, but make sure you've got your critical analysis right, because if you can't argue objectively, then that's just mudslinging. Boom. Mike drops. Rachel, always a joy, folks. You'll find Rachel on Twitter at bookish underscore Rachel. Rachel spelt R-A-C-H-A-E-L. You'll find a myriad of brilliant tweets and threads on the Marshalls and on the Marshalls' wives significantly. And Rachel, I know you'll be back very soon as ever. Thank you for the prep behind this. The hours that go in are brilliant. It's been another belter. It's been an absolute joy as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor-level patrons Mark Stoose, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark, Roy Muir, Liam Telfer, Ger Brown and Graham Swidenbank. My Commander Patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest and Ross Flowers. 
and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Colson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.